Please uh, take your Bibles again to 2 Corinthians. Our text this morning again is uh, from the 11th chapter and we're going into the 12th chapter. The title of my message this morning is Let Down, Caught Up. And uh, I would like for you to recall uh, that uh, this section of 2 Corinthians is Paul's effort to expose the Judaizers, the super-apostles, and their effort to take control of the Corinthian church. To do so, they used boasting as a means to show their superiority over Paul so that the church would dismiss Paul and his God-directed ministry among them. Paul retorted that boasting was the, was the practice of fools. Fools are fools in their effort to assert their program in the church because they were blind to the fact that they were actually going up against God and His will. The Lord is the one who established that church in Corinth. Not Paul. Paul was just a servant of Christ to do that. They were opposing Paul. But not really. They were really opposing Jesus who said, I will build my church. And they are blind to this fact. And they were also, I think, blind to the fact that they were they were being used of Satan himself because they're using his tactics to accomplish his end, Satan's end. Therefore, Paul declared there in, in verse 15 of chapter 11, their end will correspond to their deeds. Interesting how many times that phrase shows up in Scripture. Their end shall correspond to their deeds. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. People laugh and say, where is the promise of His coming? Peter reminded them. He judged the world once with a, with a flood of water. They ignore that completely. But He's coming back to judge it with fire. The proverb declares, answer not a fool according to his folly. Uh, this is an interesting proverb. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And oh boy, how sometimes we are tempted to react and answer people in the context that they're delivering their foolishness to us. And if we were to answer them According to their folly, we would just show ourselves to be foolish as well. But then the, the proverb goes on to say, answer a fool in his, to, according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. And then he turned around and says, answer a fool according to his folly. Lest he be wise in his own eyes. And by the way, it's Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. But here's the catch-22 problem that Paul faced. If you answer fools, you're in danger of looking foolish yourself. But if you fail to answer them, then you leave them in their own conceit. Thus, to awaken the church, Paul resorted to folly. I wish 
you would bear with me in a little foolishness. He says, do bear with me. That was the first verse of the 11th chapter. He argued that he would continue to use this method to awaken the church. And this would be verses 12, 16 to 18. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms that we do. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. Uh, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast, for you gladly bear with fools. Wow, what an indictment of the church. What an indictment of the church. So with that then, Paul plunged in. So he says in, in uh, chapter uh, 11, verse 21 again, But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. And that basically what Paul is saying here is, what they're bragging about themselves, look, just look at me. I'm nowhere behind them in any of what they're boasting about. They can't, they can't claim one thing that I can't claim. And that fact, actually, Paul could claim a whole lot more. So in the verses that follow, Paul rehearsed the toils, the trials, the hardships that he suffered in proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And then in his constant anxiety for the churches established in his missionary journeys. Can you imagine going through all of the hardships that he went through? And then to having these churches established and then turning around and finding that, that uh, these churches are in danger. And that all of his efforts may have been for nothing. That's what he said about the Galatians. I fear that I may have labored among you in vain. He did not share this to prove how great he was. Just the opposite. He endured these things for three reasons. Number one, because of the reality of Jesus and his eternity in his life. Paul met Jesus and understood the reality of eternity. And that drove his ministry. Secondly, Paul also knew of the power of the gospel and that what he was called to suffer in preaching the gospel only revealed the vehemence of Satan to prevent the gospel from being preached. Satan's efforts are nevertheless futile. The harder the preacher suffers, the harder the servant of God suffers, the more he suffers, the more he would be inclined to quit and give it up because of the pressure of Satan on him, the more the Spirit of God works in him to establish and sustain him to defeat Satan in that very effort. Satan is a defeated foe. His efforts are futile. 
You, know, you believe that? I mean, he's working hard. But everything he's working to do is futile. He's already been judged. And one of these days, and I can't wait, he's going to be cast headlong into the lake of fire forever and ever. The third thing here is that Paul recognized the great mercy of God, personally, the great mercy of God upon him. He persecuted the church, but God had mercy on him and saved him. And as a heart with, filled with gratitude, he determined to work harder than anyone else. Although he recognized that even that was only by the grace of God. Just read 1 Corinthians 15, the first verses there. Even then, Paul had to learn that it was not in his strength or his ability that made him successful for the kingdom of God. God took him through many trials and hardships to break him of reliance on the flesh and to direct him to dependence on the power of God. This is why he wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in the plausible words of wisdom, human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and, and power of God, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's verses 3 to 5 of 1 Corinthians 2. His experiences produced in him endurance of faith, trust of providence, and love and sympathy of Christ. So he could declare, who is weak? And I am not weak. Are you going through some hardship? Paul says, I identify and, if, and are you struggling and, and falling? Then I am, I'm, I'm standing there and I'm indignant to see you restored. That's his attitude. Wow, what an attitude. When you're suffering, Paul says, I suffer. And when you're, when you're stumbling in your spiritual walk, I am, I am, I'm mad. I'm mad at the devil. I'm mad at sin. I'm mad at the weakness of the flesh. And I long to see you, you recovered and walking with God. In the flesh, we are spiritually weak and feeble. But caution is also needed because in weakness, we're prone to glory and success. Ah, look what I did. See how great I am. Thus, Paul will not point to any of his own personal accomplishments as, a, as authority for his ministry. Rather, he points to what posed for him great difficulties. For those proved to be what he could truly glory in. The Lord was with him and working through him to the accomplishment of his will for the glory of God. So this lesson of humility is now illustrated in two contrasting events. We uh, considered one last week, his being let down, literally and spiritually, let down in the basket and let down spiritually by the Lord. 
I'm going to repeat a little here, but Paul says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. There in chapter, in chapter 11, verse 30. Literally stated in the Greek there, it says, I will boast of my weakness or feebleness. If I'm going to boast of anything, it's going to be my weakness and feebleness. And the first event here occurred at the beginning of his ministry, as we noted. That experience killed his fleshly expectations and humbled him into real submission to Christ. You don't get that by a first reading of it. You have to study it. But the second experience, which uh, is, begins there with verse 1 of chapter 12, could have, in his own words, exalted him above measure, causing him to be conceited or haughty. But to prevent this, God intervened with a thorn in the flesh. So let's get to uh, the first one here again. A letdown. A letdown. As we note in last week's message, Paul's conversion is recorded in Acts chapter 9. He went to Damascus to persecute Christians. But the Lord confronted him and converted him. Then God said of him to Ananias, He is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Acts 9 verse 15. Now listen to this very carefully. Paul was to be God's servant to bear his name before Gentiles and kings and also the children of Israel in that order. Even as Paul confessed later after his experience in Jerusalem, the apostles in Jerusalem recognized that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised Gentiles. Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for the, his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. That's Galatians 2, 7 and 8. Now, the clear and obvious message here is that Peter, excuse me, is that Paul is glorying in what others would see as defeat and failure. He got chased out. He, they were going to kill him. He escaped by the skin of his teeth. He embraced suffering. Paul did. Embraced suffering as if it were a joy to experience. Everyone knows that it is not good and whatever is negative must be avoided at all costs. Not, not Paul. I believe there's more to it than, than that. And it is very possible that Paul may have questioned God's wisdom in making him an expert in Judaism because he's a Pharisee and he was a rising star in Phariseeism. An apostle to the Gentiles? And think, think about this. The Jewish mindset was that they were the people of God. So read the account again in Acts chapter 9. After being baptized, Paul went straight for the synagogue. As if to say, 
with my pedigree and training as a Pharisee, doesn't it make more sense to let me preach to the Jews? And we read there that he powerfully proved to them biblically and persuasively that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Messiah, long promised and long expected by the Jews. The result, they wanted to kill him. <laughs> According to Acts chapter 9, verse 23. So the, the disciples there helped him, rescued him, and he was able to flee Damascus, but in disgrace. And what happened afterward? He spends three years in Arabia, the Arabian wilderness. I think he went to Sinai to be tutored by Jesus himself, according to Galatians chapter 1, verse 17. Acts, in Acts 9, verse 25, he's escaped, he escapes Damascus, but in Acts 9, 26, he goes to Jerusalem. So there's a time that Acts does not give us, three years. Then he tried again, going to the Jews in Jerusalem. What happened when he got to Jerusalem? The believers there were afraid of him. He must have been really good at his job. <laughs> they're, they're scared to death of him. But after he gained their confidence, he turned to the Hellenists. And in this case, Hellenists are Jews who adopted Greek customs. These were compromisers. The Pharisees were the purists. Separation from the world separated completely from the world. Keep that in mind. Separated from the world. So what does he do then in Jerusalem? He goes after the compromisers, the Jewish Hellenists, the ones who had adopted the Greek customs and thereby compromised the faith of Abraham. And the scripture tells us there, he spoke boldly to them but again, they did not accept him. They wanted to kill him, according to Acts 9.29. His heart must have sunk at that point. The believers sent him out of the country again in disgrace, and he went to Tarsus, where he remained virtually forgotten for several years. Think about that. Some suggest from seven to ten years. And if you look at the, the uh, chronology of the events in Paul's life, I, it works out to be about that, from seven to ten years. Think about that. He's virtually forgotten. So the principle here is that Paul learned in this experience I am going to glory in what was the hardest thing in my life. When I was let down. When things weren't working out. When my expectations were not realized. Where, where I was want, and I was wondering where the Lord was in my life. I mean, Ananias reports what the Lord told him. And wow! And 
now we're looking at seven to ten years and the apostle has done nothing. Not a thing. He's going to be my witness before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. But here's the thing. Everything changed when he went to Antioch because of persecution. And let me give you a little background here. Because of persecution, the disciples in Judea fled. Jesus made it very clear. You're going to be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the world. All right, we, we, we watched that progress in the book of Acts. The gospel comes to Jerusalem. And then it goes into Judea. And then because of persecution, uh, it goes into Samaria. And then further than that, we have disciples scattered that uh, went as far as Phoenicia and Antioch of Syria. And whenever, when they were scattered, they went, according to the book of Acts, everywhere preaching the gospel. First, to the Jews only. But interestingly, when they were in Antioch, the, the Jews again rejecting the gospel. But Gentiles, and here they're called Hellenists again, but this is time they're not Jewish compromisers. They are real Greek-speaking non-Jews, Gentiles. The Gentiles heard and responded in large numbers. That's according to Acts chapter 11, verse 21. The hand of the Lord was, upon, was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard how the gospel was having an impact on the region, they sent Barnabas to investigate. After evaluating the situation, he went to Tarsus to find Paul. And it's interesting, the Greek there, of his seeking out Paul, means he didn't find him easily. He pursued him and kept after it until he found him. And then persuaded him to accompany him back to Antioch. Here at last, when Paul began ministering to those he was supposed to, the world was turned upside down and that fruit remains even to today. He became the apostle to the Gentiles. But note this very carefully. I think Paul's heart still lay with his kinsmen, the Jews. But his understanding of God's plan changed. See, I, I believe he was under the impression that God was going to reestablish. See, they believed in the when the Messiah came, Messiah would throw the Gentile bums out, would reestablish the throne of David in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem would be the capital of the world and the Jews would be reigning over the Gentiles. They couldn't see anything 
other than that. And Paul, I think, had that same attitude. So there in, in Romans chapter 9, he tells us, For I could wish my, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he explains why. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption and the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, is the Messiah, who is God overall, blessed forever. Amen. Yeah. So here he listed all the privileges of the Jews in their old covenant. Old covenant connection. Here he listed all, uh, and here he sees their stubborn rejection of Jesus presenting a great problem. If this is God's plan, that the Jews should receive Messiah, and he establishes the throne of David, and Jerusalem becomes the capital of the world, what happened when they rejected Jesus and nailed him to a cross? Paul now understands. For he tells us, and he, he starts out by asking the plan, did God's word fail? Did God's word fail? Did God's plan for a kingdom collapse when they rejected their Messiah? This is what many thought, that his plan as revealed in the world, word, collapsed, failed, came to an end. No, Paul objected, it was not as though the word of God failed. Verse 6, Romans 9, 6, what then? Note, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of, his, of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your seed, your offspring, be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. That's verses 7 and 8. That includes Gentiles. Paul now understood. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power had, had endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known, notice, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He was very patient with them. What's he, what's he talking about? He's talking about his own people. In order, notice, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Ah, he got his eyes open. Now that brings us to the second one here, and that's the thorn in the flesh. 
This one is equally interesting. In chapter 12 here, it opens in with this second event that God used to humble his servant, Paul. He begins by repeating that he is boasting. Apparently, the super apostles bragged about their visions and revelations, like many radio and television preachers do today. Uh, God appeared to me and told me and showed me and this and that and the other. No, we'll leave it there. Paul will now show share his vision. It's interesting to me, many commentators suggest that Paul, because he's speaking there in the third person, I knew a man about 14 years ago, keeps it in the third person there for, for this discussion. And so there are many commentators who suggest then that Paul was speaking of someone else. My, my question is, how would that make any sense here in his major argument? And particularly this first statement in the uh, chapter when he says, uh, I'm going to uh, continue to brag here. <laughs> and then later when, when he talks about the thorn in the flesh, he uses the first person to prevent me from being conceited. First of all, why would be, Paul be conceited about another man's experience? You'd think he'd be jealous. <laughs> he had visions of glory. I didn't. He had told me all about his visions of glory. I didn't see those, that vision of glory. But I'm going to get proud over it? How would that work? No. Paul was saying here, it was me, but I'm telling you in a third person. Because I'm not, I don't want to bring, I don't want to put myself forward in this matter. But I want to explain what happened. So, uh, I, I really think that's the issue. And I think Paul here is using this technique for emphasis. He explained that the vision occurred 14 years earlier. That gives it a little time frame. And what it does, it fits exactly the time when he was stoned at Lystra. He said, whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. In other words, I don't know if he was dead or alive. It's very possible that the stoning at Lystra killed him. He may have died. And what, what happens when a soul dies? goes immediately into the presence of God. So I, that's kind of what, what I think happened. Considerable uncertainty over, the, over these events plagued his mind. He was caught up to the third heaven, or paradise. There's three heavens. The first heaven is the atmosphere, the clouds. The second heaven is the realm of the stars. The third is the very dwelling place of God. Most likely, Paul died and was taken immediately into the presence of the Lord. And what he saw there overwhelmed him. He couldn't describe it. There were not words to describe it. And neither does, did he mention it, as far as we know, for 14 years. You'd think if he had this kind of a vision, man, he'd write a book. Put it on the New York bestseller list there. Get that, get the word out. I saw heaven. Yeah, didn't happen. And he mentions it here 
only to prove his point. And even the mention of this experience here brought tension to him, for he writes, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not I I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, this vision of heaven that I had does not make me any better than any other preacher of the gospel. And that's why I've never said anything. This, this experience is not elevating me above anybody else. Why? It's, preachers have to understand that we minister by the power of God. In the will of God, by the power of God. And that's the thing that drives me fearfully to the scriptures alone. I don't want to give you my philosophy of life. I just want to tell you what the Bible says. And I study hard so that I don't tell you what, what uh, somebody else may think about what the Bible says. I, 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 for years and years I've known preachers who uh, couldn't wait for the sword of the Lord to come out so that they could get their sermon for Sunday morning. I know a preacher in, in Indiana that did that very thing. I sat in his office while he did it. No, I want God to tell me what he wants me to tell me from his word, not through some vision. And then I, want, I hope to be faithful in preaching the word. So... Even the mention of this experience, as I said, brought tension to him. So he and I said, I'm, I'm, I, he refused to boast even about this, vi this vision. He mentions it only here to prove he was not behind the superior apostle, the super apostles in any way. Bragging of this vision would make him a fool, even if it was the truth. He rather wanted the believers in Corinth to see him as a humble servant of Christ. The flesh says, let me share with you my supernatural vision of glory so that you can be impressed with my spirituality. Not Paul. He says, I want you to judge me by what I am saying based on how I have lived among you in holiness and submission to Christ. To keep the flesh out of the picture, God graciously gave Paul a thorn in the flesh. Now we'll talk about that here in a second. And he describes it as a messenger of Satan to harass him. Harass him. Uh, I'm, I'm personally thinking it was an individual because it says a messenger of Satan to harass him. That is to keep him from becoming conceited according to verse number 7. This is ironic. Satan was cast out of heaven for his pride. And now God is using this fallen angel to prevent pride in his servant. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? What was the thorn? 
Paul doesn't say. And as I've said, commentators here have offered a number of things based on the things that, that Paul mentions as debilitating. He had he probably had problem with his eyes. He probably suffered malaria at one point. Possibly uh, he he had remaining physical effects of his stoning that he endured at Lystra. I can't imagine that he wouldn't. When he was stoned at Lystra, they weren't throwing pebbles on him. They were throwing heavy rocks to kill him and to crush him. Some suggest, and I personally believe this, that it was some annoying individual that was a constant annoyance. We don't know for certain, but I do want to tell you this. It was no mere sliver in his finger when he says a thorn in the flesh. The Greek word here that's translated thorn is the word that's used of a tent stake. He had a tent stake driven into him. This is not just a little annoyance. <laughs> this is a real problem. And it was so debilitating that Paul pled with God three times to remove it. And here again, the Greek is very clear. When he pled with God, it wasn't just, Lord, if you could just, you know, see it, see clear to maybe get it away from me for a little while. No, it meant he went on his knees and begged God earnestly three times, please, Lord, deliver me from this thorn. What was God's response to him? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength, my power is made, weak, is made perfect in weakness. Is his grace sufficient? Ah, the, the flesh craves comfort and ease. The flesh boasts of the things that make others envious and jealous. Paul's major difference between he and his enemies at Corinth was his willingness to boast of his weakness, his infirmities. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness or infirmities in the King James, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content, excuse me, with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Father, we come before you and thank you for these words of the Apostle Paul, for his example. And Lord, this life is not easy, it is hard. There's so many disappointments, so many discouragements, so many trials, so many pressures. And then we fight against our flesh itself. Our flesh that wants us to cave and deny God and do the things that bring the flesh comfort and pleasure. Oh God, I pray. I pray for myself and I pray for your people that we would be strong in the grace of our Lord. That we would resist the flesh. That we would walk in the Spirit that we may not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. 
For the flesh lusts against spirit and the spirit against the, the flesh. And these things are not compatible. For to be in the flesh is not to please God. Lord, we want to please you. Grant mercy. And I thank you for what you'll do now in Jesus' name. Amen.